You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, our local watering hole here, and I am so excited to be here uh, as Christy Morris and I are where are we, Christy? I don't... Is this on even... Are we even on the map? I think we are a cricket past a log, you know, somewhere oh, in the, the wilderness. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yep. Yeah. Um, two crickets past the log and um, like, you know, three streams down. So... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Around the fish. Around the fish. Okay. And, <laughs> and just across the street and or I guess the chasm from the T-Rex. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh well i am i you know this is, I, I didn't tell you this before but this is actually a movie that i planned on talking about like years ago and then it got bumped off the schedule and of course this year we have been kind of up a creek without a paddle um so basically where we are right now and uh <laughs> we haven't had new movies to be talking about and so we've been kind of going back to things that we have just missed and so I'm really excited that this week we're going to finally talk about King Kong, Peter Jackson's remake from 2005. And I think this one's going to be a lot of fun to dive into. Um, so I really, really enjoy it. Now, before we get into that, of course, you can find the 602 Club wherever you get your podcasts. If you have um, an Apple podcast, please do give us a star rating and review. It helps people find the show. But regardless of where you're listening, just make sure that you're subscribed so you get the show as soon as it drops. Um, you can also uh, find us on Twitter at TrekFM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. There's a listeners-only discussion group you can talk uh, on there on Facebook you can find. You can also find us at Trek.FM and see all the different shows we're doing. And then there's a contact section there where you can even send us an email if you'd like. And I really want to say a huge thank you to associate producers here in the uh, 602 Club. They are supporting us through Patreon, and they make sure that this show keeps coming to you each and every week. And that's Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Lamette, and Daniel Noah. Um, love these guys and their support of the show. They've been supporting the show for a long time, as well as the network. Um, and they make sure that not only this show comes, but every show on the network. So, um, it's a huge network, and, and we honestly, um, we need your help. Uh, and and so you know, I don't make uh, the plea as often as I should, but go to Patreon.com/slash/TrekFM and see how you can be part of the team and help make sure that podcasts that you love keep coming to you each and every week. And so, Christy, one of the things that's so interesting to me about this this remake of King Kong. You know, King Kong's one of the most famous movies from 1933. Um, it's mm -hmm. one of the most pivotal movies. It, it, it really um, set the tone for what cinema could do. Um, the uh, Just the enchantment of, of being in a whole other world, really, um, on Skull Island with King Kong and all of these different monsters. And 
it is this remake is fascinating to me because um this is really a personal journey for Peter Jackson as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And um, I watched all of the extras on the Blu-ray, which, like the Lord of the Rings, fantastic, massively in-depth, some of the best material I've seen behind the scenes on any films. And he has somebody who fell in love with this movie at the, at the original at the age of nine. And just, you know, he saw it on TV then. He was in tears when Kong slips off the building. At the age of 12, he tries to attempt to remake it. Um, and, like, he he even made his own little Kong model. You know, <laughs> so he cute. made the top, yeah, he made the top of the Empire State Building. Um, and he never really is able to finish that. But he gets really into fantasy and sci-fi because of this series. And to me, that was something so fascinating to hear because, you know, he then tells everyone in the documentary, look, everybody would probably think that my greatest ambition then, because I made Lord of the Rings, was to make Lord of the Rings, that that was my kind of like pinnacle. But for him, the pinnacle was always wanting to make King Kong. And and so just starting there, I think it's so fascinating to see that Peter Jackson's like whole life, like from seeing King Kong to the fact that he gets to make it, is driving him towards this desire to actually get the opportunity to do this. And and that's just, I mean, what a kind of a neat place to start for a remake of a really famous movie. Right, especially when remakes get a lot of crap, you know, in general. I would say that a, a lot of people are more fans of the original of whatever it is than a remake or a reboot. Um, so I think that it's nice to seeing, like you said, that it, drives his life that he chose to be a filmmaker because of King Kong and then still had his own vision of what he'd like to add to it or focus on, which is interesting. So, I mean, yeah, I I think that it's really, you can tell very heartfelt when you're watching it, especially then knowing this. I think that that uh, that does create a really interesting question maybe later on as we talk to the movie is 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 that a detriment to the movie or a benefit to the movie? So mm-hmm. I think something we can kind of return to uh, a little bit later on as, as we kind of start to wrap up our conversation. But this is also really interesting, too, because, um, you know, Jackson becomes a filmmaker and he is... Um, doing his film the frighteners and universal pictures is very impressed with what they're seeing with the early vfx uh or and uh visual effects uh footage and they want to know what his next movie will be they want to know what he wants to do and they ask him to do a uh, creature from the black lagoon and he's not really interested in that but they're aware of his obsession with king kong so they actually offer him the ability to remake this back in 1996. Um, and they start the whole process of working through the script and um, working with Robert Zemeckis uh, as executive producer. And this is the thing that I wanted to kind of dive into you know, a little bit with you, because mm-hmm. I think this would be fascinating to kind of talk about. Um, they, they're, they're even looking at cast members, you know, for the film at this point, they, they, they're looking at maybe like Kate Winslet, 
uh, or a mini driver, possibly. Um, they're looking for the the role of um, Jack Driscoll and Carl, including like Robert De Niro and George Clooney. And uh, this early version of the script, and I kind of wanted to, to run this by you and see what you thought. So the early version of the script has her being a um, a famed English archaeologist, like the daughter of a famed archaeologist. Um, so the movie would have felt, a, and in fact, they even talk about this. They're like, it felt like the guys who made the mummy had read our script for King <laughs> Kong, because that's the vibe of the movie that they had. Um, mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, like, is that something that you would have been interesting to see? Yeah, I mean, I was one of the people that really enjoyed The Mummy, so I would have really enjoyed that storyline too. But I'm also glad that they went a different route with it in what we ended up with in Kong instead of going that route. Because I think The Mummy is more of a comedy after it's finished rather than King Kong here being a much more serious tone. Yeah, and I... I was I was thinking about that. Would would King Kong have then worked as a comedy in that sense, like the kind of the mummy sense of a comedy? Like you know, they're having a lot of fun um, and everything in those movies, and and it's basically just a rip roaring adventure. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I don't know quite how I feel about it. I I feel like it could have worked, but then. I also wonder if maybe it would have just made too much light of the whole situation. So you wouldn't have had, would you have had any depth, you know? And so right. that's that's the thing I end up wondering. Because, you know, look, the mummy movies aren't really known for their depth. I mean, no. it's, yeah, they're kind <laughs> of like goofball action adventure movies, which mm-hmm. I have no problem with. I, I really enjoyed the original mummy movie. Um, I thought it was really fun. Mm-hmm. So... But I just don't know if if this would have is worked as well. And I guess I guess we're kind of coming down on that. We're kind of glad they changed their idea. Yeah, I think ultimately we're both a no thank you. Although it's an interesting idea that we like what we got as far as the tone here, and that that would have been a very different movie. I think that it takes away some of the depth, like you said, and the the moral takeaways I think that you get from this version of King Kong that you don't get from the mummy. Yeah, no, I I think you're absolutely right. You know, especially that idea with the, the moral takeaways, because I think there are some in this movie that are quite interesting. And so, um, mm-hmm. what, what was fascinating to me is the reason that this never continues. Um, you know, they, uh, Universal sees the upcoming release of Godzilla and Mighty Joe Young. And then, of course, even in 2001, you get uh, Planet of the Apes being remade by um, Tim Burton. Less said about that film, the better. Uh, mm-hmm. So they they abandoned King Kong in, in 97. Um, and then... We don't hear about it again until, you know, The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers are a huge success. Uh, the Return of the King is going to be coming out. And Universal again approaches Jackson about the idea of directing. And, and he says yes. And so they, you know, get to work on rewriting the script with the, the writers here um, that he used with The Lord of the Rings. I... It's it's a fascinating thing that that there's just like because I I wonder my 
I have to wonder in my mind, did Jackson think, will I ever get to return to King Kong now that they've said, like, eh, we're not going to do it. Right? Like, that had to be the worst feeling because they got his hopes up. They were already working with him on it and everything. And then they're like, yeah, I mean, there's some other ape movies coming out. We're worried about competition if we release the movie at this time. So we should put it on hold. And he's like, but I want to make it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> that's it's got to be the feeling in his heart at that moment. And then, you know, it all comes back around and, and he gets the opportunity to, to do this. And so... um yeah, and, and I think that's, it's just, again, it's interesting, this whole journey, this whole personal journey that, that he's on to do this. And and not only that, but, you know, Weta had been working on all these designs and stuff for the movie, um, big time. I mean, there it's amazing the amount of work that they had already been putting into the movie when it gets canceled. And then, you know, of course, they move on to Lord of the Rings, and the rest is history, and, and that... Mm-hmm success gets him again the opportunity to finally remake the story of king kong and so um one of the things to me then that i found really interesting was this idea of this mysterious island and skull island is such an important part of any kong movie and creating that mystery and everything and i was fascinated to learn that originally there wasn't really any mystery at the beginning of the movie. Like, everybody kind of knew where they were going. The way it was originally written. Yeah. Which yeah. is so weird to me. Like, that seems kind of strange that, like, everybody would have an idea of where you're going. And so, like, w- like where's... it? I mean, there's absolutely no tension then. And yeah. The well, and then, too, just thinking of, of it from a logical perspective, how would they know? You know, I mean, like they may have had the map to begin with, but still, I mean, no one else aside from the one person that has it would know about it unless they had been shown the map. Right. And even then, what gets them excited to go? They're like, that sounds terrible. I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, and and that's the that's the interesting thing is so it was a place that was already known to have existed, but. What they do is they change that. They add this map that it's this place that's just basically like rumor and hearsay and like mm-hmm. tall tales, you know, just just massive uh, sea stories that you'd hear from sailors. And so then it allows you then to be able to build the tension at the beginning of the movie with the secret. Um, and it also adds the ability of then as they kind of make their way secretly towards that, you're building the tension of the ship as all these rumors start flooding about with, you know, uh, different people uh, talking about, you know, and especially the sailors kind of sharing with mm-hmm. the actors kind of their tall tales of, of where they're going and these, these you know, these rumors of, of secret islands and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think that definitely helps the movie. Um, and then the other part I loved, and and they, they do this with their movies in general. Obviously, they did this thought process with Lord of the Rings, but just the design work behind the island itself made it a really interesting place to me. Um, and just quite different, I think, than I even, I just even remember seeing it the first time, like 
they really put a lot of thought into making this place that feels like a mystery. Even when, when you reach the mystery island, it's still a mystery. Right. Like, they don't show you everything that you could possibly see on the island right off the bat. It's a little at a time. I love that there's, like, an outer gate of all of these rocks and stuff before you then get into where they meet the natives and see the inner gate that's supposed to keep Kong inside with all of the, you know, bamboo and stuff. Um, which, you know, if you had seen Kong movies before, everyone would have seen that kind of gate before and known that there are natives that keep him in um, and keep him satisfied with offerings. So that, you know, we were kind of expecting but they do a great job of making this area so foggy and still shrouded in mystery. And then even leading into the forest. I mean, they only show you glimpses here and there rather than leading you through everything. And I think that's all you need. But if this didn't work, a lot of the movie wouldn't work because you only go to the city at the very end. Yeah. Well, and and so... That's the thing that I thought was so smart is that the way they design this island is there's a lot behind it. And it, it's not I mean, and again, it creates this mystery and it makes you want to know more. And they don't necessarily get a chance even in the film to completely give you the whole story. But for them, the the island itself is a, an island that used to be much bigger and it's slowly been sinking and so mm-hmm. the wall is actually the wall that used to surround this great city. So it wasn't meant to keep anything in. It was meant to keep things out. But as the island has been sinking, that that massive city has been slowly disappearing. And so the the animals and, and, and you know, the dinosaurs and Kong and everyone have had to, the, the land mass has slowly been shrinking on them. So they've now taken refuge in what used to be the inner of of like a city which Mm -hmm. of course is completely overgrown so it's this ancient civilization we don't know anything about all we get is just the 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 amazing um places that we see and we could tell somewhere this used to be something grand right um Mm -hmm. the kind of place that it almost kind of feels like atlantis ish you know like in that kind of scope um Mm -hmm. and then the 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 civilization outside the wall uh for them is a group of people that had somehow been shipwrecked or marooned on the island and they're they're forced on the outside of what used to be the inside you know and so mm-hmm. like the it just to me like they put so much thought into creating this mysterious lost world and, you know, of course, this lost civilization on the inside and then who these people are on the outside. And, you know, I, th- I it makes sense then, too, like why these people who live on the outside of the wall, you know, for them, they kind of worship Kong. Right. And mm-hmm. they they think if they offer him, you know, offerings of pretty girls basically um that that he will keep them safe or you know leave them alone or any of mm-hmm. those things and so i was just kind of like a, a astounded with just the amount of thought that went into that and and to me 
it makes the movie so much fun to watch because it's not just I, it's one of those movies where I'm not just watching, you know, just the action, but I'm always trying to pick up all the little details that are everywhere, um, whether it's in that old wall that's there or it's once you're in the jungle and you're picking out all these pieces of, you know, dilapidated, uh, ruined civilization that has been completely overgrown, but you can still see the bones of it there. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just, that's to me, like that's kind of the fun of, of thoughtful movie making. And all of the bugs, right? Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> I will Ugh. say that is that's my one really big criticism of this movie is it feels like they were way too overzealous with the many different kinds of bugs and worms and whatever that ate people, attacked people, felt up their face. Um it and I hate bugs anyway, so that's like my nightmare. So yeah. <laughs> no thanks. I hear you. you. Well, and I thought what was fascinating is that is that, you know, what you can tell is that they don't want this to feel like Hawaii. You know, they don't want this to feel like a place that's hospitable. They don't Mm -hmm. want this to feel like a place that you want to be in. Yeah. You know, this is not a place anybody really should want to go. Uh, And I think that's that's they really do that. Well, they make this the most awful place. And, And of course, you know. They reference in in the movie the idea of the heart of darkness and to kind of mm-hmm. slowly descend into the heart of darkness. This place just can, get, this deal just keeps getting worse all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you every time you turn around, there's something else that's trying to kill you. And part of that, I thought too, and 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 the way they even design, especially the prehistoric creatures, you can see they also put a lot of thought into that, which was. You know, if if all of these creatures have survived where dinosaurs and everything haven't survived anywhere else, well, they've continued to evolve. So they're not just the same, you know, dinosaurs that you would have seen anywhere else. They have their own characteristics. In fact, there's even kind of new variations of dinosaurs you wouldn't have seen anywhere else. And again, all of that, I think, is just they've put a lot of thought into creating Skull Island. And... You know, I it's the most inhospitable place on Earth <laughs> next to, I guess, yeah. like the Antarctic. <laughs> well, and too, if you think about it, it would be since no one had been there other than animals for so long unchecked, you know, it. they said hundreds of years since the civilization had been there of people that I mean, built all of longer, these things. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So all of these creatures and dinosaurs and kong have gone unchecked and just continued to overgrow and then you know definitely exhibit a when the people fall down inside this crevice and they're literally in like the bottom feeders area yeah so gross and then you've got like scorpion like things and spiders and i i really think too that they did a great job with the effects of making it feel like you're really in the forest floor or in a swamp or with Anne inside the moldy log, which was disgusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's well, believable. 
Exactly. No, absolutely. And and I I, I think you getting into the effects work there is is really interesting. You know, because like Lord of the Rings, you know, obviously they filmed in New Zealand, but this mm-hmm. is something to where they didn't film anywhere. They created all of these things, these these sets. Um, that they would use and, you know, they would create a section of the forest or something uh, in, in at, as a set. So it would feel like what they want. But but then they could then extend that set and they would use what they called bigotures, which they use on Lord of the Rings, too, mm-hmm. where they would create these things. And then they would also set extend with like matte paintings, digital matte paintings and stuff. So they're using all the different techniques to create this place that is completely new it's not anywhere you can go. And I think that's one of the things that just makes this place feel so like like the fantasy jungle, right? When you get in your mind. Yeah. When you, yeah. Which also kind of references the feel of the jungle in the original King Kong. Like if you see those those pictures and everything, mm-hmm. or if you've seen the original King Kong, you know, it's 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 a jungle that they created. You know, so it wasn't a place that they had filmed anywhere, of course, and they did the same thing here. And I think that really makes the the jungle itself really stand out and be this place that it kind of is the jungle of nightmares. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned, too, that um, it they mentioned Heart of Darkness in the movie because not everybody would catch that. And I love that Jimmy brings it up multiple times. And then the last time he brings it up, he's talking to the captain and he says, wait, this was not an adventure story, was it? And he says, no. (laughs) So you're already kind of getting that foreboding of, Mm -hmm. yeah, this isn't going to be, oh, they go in and see some stuff and come back out. You know, we'll be gone in a couple hours. No, this is more like a horror story. <laughs> I no, absolutely, and and I think that's one of the things that they do with the creation of the jungle and and, and the effects mm-hmm. work. So I just wanted to ask you. Obviously, uh, this movie is from two thousand five, and technology has has changed in the last fifteen years. Um, and so, how do you feel like the, the you know just the effects work stands up? Because obviously, they're creating you know. <laughs> dino stampedes with the uh they the, the he, uh, brontosauruses i know don't exist but they basically cr- recreated the kind of the classic movie monster brontosaurus for this movie the, mm-hmm. uh you know the like the velociraptor type of things like how did how did all that work for you i could definitely see that in the way that the dinosaurs in particular were created they had supposed you know mutations that would have enabled them to survive longer in this place than the traditional look of like raptors or T-Rexes that we would have seen. Um, But I think that for the most part, the effects are incredible and really obviously because of how well they did the bugs, for example, it really bothered me. (laughs) Um, But that's a credit to how good of a job they did. It felt real. I think that the only place that it didn't work for me was when you see the brontosauruses falling over each other it looks like they didn't spend a whole lot of time really on the detail on that. Um, but maybe too, it's just the way that the scene would work in general, that brontosaurus is falling over each other does look clumsy. <laughs> no, I agree with you. Um, I think most of the other things work pretty well. Um, I think that the, the scene that probably just sticks out to me the most is not really working 
and and part of it is just the amount of work that they're doing there but it's just not as seamless as it it should be and it is that whole brontosaurus chase um mm-hmm. you know uh a lot of that is the melding between live actors on a part of a set which melds then with a uh bigature that they've created which melds with digital characters which so i mean and and the work is as astounding uh the the fact that it it looks as good as it does but it never quite marries the way that you would want it to so that like a lot of the other things it feels more real mm-hmm. you know um like maybe there was so, a different way that they could have created the action yeah, in general yeah i don't know um part of it i th- i feel like that that scene specifically feels slightly too cartoony yeah and so Whereas, as cartoony as it is to have, you know, King Kong face off against, uh, you know, three T-Rexes in a big mm-hmm. fight, that didn't feel as cartoony. Um, and I don't know, it, again, I think it's just something about the way they created that all, but also just the amount of what's happening on screen, you know, when you when you have just four animal characters and then Anne... Uh, that's mm-hmm. a lot less to pay attention to than having, you know, 30 brontosauruses as well as velociraptor type characters, as well as human characters, all trying to meld all that together. It just doesn't quite work. Um, but, I mean, I think we got to talk about it, but King Kong himself, I think, you know, Obviously, Andy Serkis is doing uh, the motion capture for King mm-hmm. Kong. But I, you know, I enjoy the King Kong from uh, Kong Skull Island. But there's something about this Kong, which, you know, he, he feels much more like an actual gorilla, just supersized. Yeah. And I think the the work with him as the characterization and everything, too, really works. I love the story his body tells you know i mean he he kind of even he's got a broken jaw he's got scars all over his body from fights he's been in Mm -hmm. um and i i think that they bring this character to life in a way that you know it makes you feel for the character so in the end that it still works that you know obviously it's it's not up to the level of today but i think they did such a good job that I still am in the story with King Kong. Yeah, I was actually wondering and thinking I should have actually Googled it. But if they studied how actual gorillas behave to really do a better job on King Mm -hmm. Kong himself in this movie, because, for example, I know for a fact that one thing that gorillas do very well because they're so close to humans in their intelligence level is sign language. And so the fact that they have Anne, you know, sort of do a sign for beautiful and then him repeat it is something gorillas would do. And then, you Mm -hmm. know, the pounding on the chest um, or even the look of embarrassment he gets when he accidentally knocks a rock on himself because that can happen. (laughs) Yeah. No, um, they absolutely did. In fact, um, Andy Serkis actually flew to Rwanda to spend time with wild gorillas to oh, just study in them. the wild not at yep. the zoo nope in the wild yeah 
No, thank you. Yeah. Which, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he really put in that time and effort to, to study, uh, you know, these, these great creatures. And so and obviously that work would go on to help him as he then played Caesar, uh, in, uh, the Planet of the Apes movies. So mm-hmm. um, he has a real affinity <laughs> for uh, <laughs> Being giant an apes. apes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think that's something that still really works. And and then because of the effects work, I think they did a really good job of capturing the emotion between Kong and Anne. So it makes it yes. believable that these two characters are connecting. Right. I, I think that they show it especially in the close-ups of his face and hers at the back and forth that they really at first start out, of course, at odds with each other because they're both trying to figure out the situation. But then she makes him laugh and then he accepts her. It seems that at that point it really turns and you can see exactly what you're saying mm-hmm. of that a bond of friendship is growing and I think that they especially show it too how much she means to him when he will stop at nothing to try and get her back. Right. Yeah. And then in the city as well, when he's picking up other blonde women thinking it's her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think with Kong in particular, they did an incredible job with Andy's body language mm-hmm. and then also with the effects of his facial yep. expressions. Yeah. Uh, something I ne- I needed to mention just about the effects work that I thought I was astounded by. They literally bought a ship. Oh wow! To then film that ship, that, and they retrofitted it so it would look the way they needed it to, like a turn of the century ship. Mm-hmm. Um, they also built a model of that ship, and then they built a ship that they could use on a massive soundstage that could be moved back and forth and stuff. So they they put that amount of work into things. So, I mean, this is, you know, they really, and and there was a scene in the documentary where Peter Jackson couldn't tell the difference in the pictures that they were bringing him between the model ship and the real ship. Oh, that's it was, good. It, yeah, that good. So, um, you know, I think regardless of how anybody feels about this movie, you know, the time, effort, and love poured into it, I think really shows in these type of details. And so that that's impressive to me and and i think you know it it whether you end up loving the entire film it it i think creates uh a a place where you're like you can give it stars you know basically for for all of these different things so um naomi watts plays the main character of andero super you know important character in film and i really think that she does such a great job with this this role um she brings such life to it she brings such energy to it and what i really love is that you know she brings such strength to the role too like she's this character who could be seen as a damsel in distress but Mm -hmm. this whole time like she's while while people are trying to come save her basically so they can get off the island she's saving herself by forming this relationship with kong in the way mm-hmm. that she does. And uh, I just, I really, uh, I, th- I think without her performance, this movie wouldn't be half of what it is. 
Absolutely. She, it's so weird. Before this movie, I didn't really know who she was. And then after watching it, actually, um, every time I've seen it, I've watched the extended cut. I meant to ask Mm -hmm. you if that was what you did. Yes. Um, Good. She carries everything. I mean, I felt like, especially since it's the extended cut, that the scenes where it's her and Kong alone and it's these emotional moments that it's just a, in a good way, emotionally exhausting movie because of her back and forth with Kong. Yes. Because I feel so much every time she's looking at him like this is the best day ever. This sunset is so pretty or please don't die. I'm just sitting there going, I agree. Please don't die. So, yeah, I absolutely think that she is the best part of the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I really I think they did a fantastic job and, and very cool that she got the opportunity to meet um, Faye Ray, who played the original Andero with Peter Jackson. They got to meet her together, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, and, and getting to 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 hear about, about that meeting between them was really neat. Um, I did want to add too. I, I agree and love that she was not just a damsel in distress because that could have been the way that they would go with it. Um, but she, from the very beginning, even when she's approaching that casting guy and he says, here's the number of a friend of mine, go get a job. A pretty girl like you doesn't have to go hungry. She realizes what he means. And I love that she just throws the card on the ground and walks away. Because you're immediately understanding she's not going to be pushed around or pushed into doing something that's beneath her just because of not having money. She's going to figure out another way. Yeah, I liked that scene, too, because, you know, she's standing there contemplating going into the place and she's like, no, Mm -hmm. this is I'm not I will not do this. And so I I still have morals. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that Jack Black, you know. And this is one of the first times I feel like I, I remember seeing him where he's not in as much of a comedic role, but he does such a great job of playing just this swarmy, slimy, like guy that you kind of hate throughout most of this movie, you know, and he just, you, he continually proves you right for not liking his character because mm-hmm. he's a character that's all about himself. And, and Jack Black just brings, um, he brings a devilish fiendishness to this guy who has a gleam in his eye, who's always looking for the buck, uh, and he's always looking for a way to get famous. And I just, you know, I, I thought Jack Black, I, you, I think even back then, you know, in 2005, I thought to myself, oh, Jack Black, that's, that's an interesting choice. But I think mm-hmm. he plays the role to perfection. Right. Initially, when you hear that name, there are certain names in that do a lot more comedy than anything else that if you throw it out, you're going really Jack black for this. I thought this was a serious movie, but he really leans into that. I think that he does have this serious side and he just usually prefers to go the more goofball route, but this absolutely, he was creepy at times, Mm -hmm. you know, when he's, especially when he says, both times about the two guys on their film crew that died the same words you know he says Mm -hmm. um he did this because it was something he believed in and you know we're gonna donate all the proceeds to his wife and kids and then his assistant is looking at him going you already said that 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I think that's the thing that makes Colin Hanks so good in that role as his assistant is mm-hmm. that he's able to play those moments because he doesn't say anything in those moments, but just the faces that he makes are so well done that they kind of show the way he's seeing this guy descend. And I think what's fascinating is is that Jack Black is that character who's descending into the heart of darkness the most because his what it is 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 he has this obsession and and that just drives him to destroy everything and i think right. he plays that really well so so we can talk about that a little bit more but later on but i and and then you know i adrian brody was a is a is an actor who was you know at that point very much known for his dr- dramatic roles but mm-hmm. Uh, I really kind of had fun with him and, and as this character, uh, as Jack Driscoll, the screenwriter, you know, he falls in love with Anne and, and that's part of the story. But to watch him kind of like be the normal guy in this whole thing, like he's just like, why, why I got pulled into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to be here. And yet he finds a way to do what must be done to get as many people as he can off the island and become an action hero basically when he's a screenwriter right and just right like he's the he's the everyday guy who gets pulled into doing not so everyday things and i i enjoyed him i don't think he has as much to do as some of the other characters but um honestly it's his delivery of a, a line at the very end of the movie where he t- he's talking about Carl that I feel like he just he's kind of the almost the conscience of the movie you know and he's the one yeah. who kind of lets you know um, when people are really going off the deep end and so yeah I think he was good. I agree I think that he is definitely not the one you expect to be the hero. And I think that was intentional here with the casting as well, because they show you by juxtaposing the actor who's playing an action hero in the movie versus (laughs) the screenwriter, right? (laughs) Who uh, they end up reversing their roles as far Mm -hmm. as the kind of people they are. And that this shows your true colors. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you may not actually be the hero that you portray on TV. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. So I like that. And I, I do. You're abs- I, I like that juxtaposition with Kyle Chandler's character, Bruce Baxter, the, the movie star um, mm-hmm. who did all these adventures films and, of course, is really a coward in real life. But then it was kind of great that instead of just allowing him to be the coward the whole time, he actually does come help and save the day. You know, yeah. all of these characters who kind of end up saying that they're not going to they're going to leave people basically like the captain Englehorn comes in and helps save the day uh and so like you have all these people all of these men who seemingly are all out for themselves and you 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 begin to separate kind of basically the sheep from the goats like who are the people mm-hmm. who are truly only out for themselves and who are the people who are here that are 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 doing their best to make sure everybody lives. Right. And that's, that's kind of the, the differentiation here in the movie. And I, I think that's where that theme of obsession comes in because, um, and that's where the, the, with the heart of darkness, like who are the men who are going to descend to the heart of darkness and, and not be able to 
pull themselves out of that, who are going to fall into the pit of obsession to the point of like, because of their selfishness that they only care about themselves. And, you know, Carl is really the epitome of that because he destroys everything that he loves to get what he wants. And I, and, and that's where, you know, Jack says the thing you come to learn about Carl is his unfailing ability to destroy the things he loves because he's yeah. so obsessed with them. And, and basically, you know, he has the Anakin complex, right? Yeah. He is the one that you can absolutely tell, you know, even initially he wants to make a movie and he ends up deciding to illegally take all of this stuff and go film the movie and then ends up losing the film and he's letting people die and then saying, but just hand me the camera first and then you can die, which is terrible, of course. And then even after they're about to get off the island, he almost kills Kong and then decides to take him in alive for his stage show back in New York. He just constantly has a good idea, but then goes about it the wrong way and absolutely destroys the thing that he mm -hmm. loves every time. And then he's is watching it blow up in his face thinking, where, where did I go wrong? And you're sitting in the audience going everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, and not only that, but I mean, I think that this is, there's a slightly bigger uh, theme in the, this obsession, which causes him to destroy things that he should realize are above him, right? That are bigger and should just be left alone. Right. And, you know, uh, you know, Kong is the last of his kind. And so it's like he has no right really to destroy this thing for his own personal gain, you know, and, and mm -hmm. the lack of stewardship then of and, and caring about anything other than himself. He's, he's one of those people who would strip mine the earth if it gave him what he wanted. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a message in there about this idea of what obsession does to us. Yeah. And um, how dangerous it is. And I really like that. And and I think it adequately shows just how um, it gets people killed uh, and yeah. it hurts people and it can destroy people, you know, uh, and, and not just physically, but emotionally and mentally. And, you know, uh, just the, the, I I really I think they do a really good job of portraying that. Yeah, I agree. I think that he, he and two, it shows how focusing on something like that can allow everything else in your life to be neglected and yes. for you to basically drive yourself mad. Mm hmm. Yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent, which, you mm -hmm. know, again, that theme of the heart of darkness is mm -hmm. very much uh, apropos then for this, you know, and what we thought was going and and that's so funny that they even call that out that this isn't an adventure story because that's where the original script was this is an adventure story right but this is not that film you know this is a this is about the sadness of of uh the way in which we can destroy the things we love because we hold on to them too tightly and try to control them when we're not meant to so yeah um and and a part of that, I I thought it was really fascinating, especially as I was watching the movie again this time. And and part of it, um, maybe just because of, you know, what we have been through uh, over the last few months here in 2020. But this idea of being alone, 
And I loved the theme of people being alone. And at the beginning of the movie, we see Anne, who's completely alone because her best friend is leaving the vaudeville. He's going back to his hometown. And her theater is closed. And so she has no one and nothing. She has no family. Mm -hmm. And I love the way that you can see the and the reason that, that her and Kong connect because Kong has lost his family. You even see the um, when he's traveling to the place he lives the most on the island, which is way above everything on this mountain. You see the remains, the the bones of what used to be his family, right. uh, and he's the last of his kind. And like her, he's not meant to live in isolation. Gorillas don't live in isolation. You were asking if they studied gorillas, and one of the things they they really learned was that gorillas live in family structures. Yep. Just watch Tarzan from Disney, and you'll know this what? too. I said watch Tarzan from Disney, and you'd know this as well. Yeah. So, um, to me, that was fascinating because, you know, then you kind of understand as well why Kong is just so angry and frustrated as a character, you know, um, because he's being, he's slowly being driven mad by the lack of fellowship and community because it's, it's gone and, and there's no one else like him. And so, um, I don't know. It's kind of interesting how much this movie kind of relates to the time period we lived, you know, in that you keep people in isolation long enough. When they get out of isolation, the anger and frustration and pain all just comes pouring out the moment something gives them an opportunity to just let loose. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring that up, too, because that's something that I remember learning in sociology in college was and that's probably why humans and gorillas interact usually so well together is because we're very similar in that sense. We are social beings, even the most introverted of people at some point needs companionship of some kind. And so without it, we do slowly go go mad because there's also no one there to unload to to you know let out any of these thoughts and feelings inside and so that totally makes sense with kong losing his family and being there alone and clinging to Anne so much when they do become mm-hmm. friends yeah. because he's saying oh i finally got some kind of companionship yeah absolutely and you know it makes sense then I, I wouldn't say then he has the obsession and he has the protection of caring for something and wanting to make sure that it continues to live. Um, right. But it's something that is so important to his own existence in a way. And in the same way that, you know, throughout this movie, her and and uh, Jack Driscoll kind of slowly kind of fall in love with each other, even though they're kind of opposites a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. um, and but at the same time she's able to recognize that isolation and that loneliness in Kong um and not on purpose i mean she's just trying to entertain him to get away right right but she begins to see that there's so much more to this creature than she once thought and it it allows her to connect and and yeah absolutely this idea of 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 um community is 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 really interesting to see here and of course you know it makes sense that uh you know 
Kong would then want to be connected, like, you know, with uh, something or someone, you know, and, and mm-hmm. there's no one on this island to connect to anymore. So, and yeah, it just makes it, it does what I, I think the movie did really successfully is it, it makes successful that relationship so that you see why, you know, she would be fighting for him at the end and why he would be fighting for her. Right. You know, um, uh, so it's, it's good. And, and it, it's, it's also really sad because, you know, again, it's Carl's obsession that destroys that, you know? Right. So. And there was one other thing that I um, should have added earlier, but I, I wondered too, if it made you think at all of, talking about extinction in a way as well of just animals being over hunted or unnecessarily killed because that also really came up for me, especially when they were harpooning him in the leg and chloroforming him and just, you know, pummeling him with weapons and she's crying and saying, no, that absolutely came to my mind and then made it even more emotional for me. Yeah. You know, I I totally agree. You know, um, I've never been a person that's been a, really a fan of zoos, and I've I've always uh, really hated the idea that we would slowly, you know, hunt uh, a species to extinction and 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 mm-hmm. not be taking care of the planet that we've been given. You know, and and so you know, I I've as a kid, I was always a big fan of whales. I, you know, I still think they're amazing creatures and to to know that so many species are on the edge of extinction is really sad. I mean, the largest land mammal on the planet is almost gone in the blue whale. So, you know, yeah, I think we have a responsibility to take care of these creatures, you know, and, and we have a responsibility to foster their continuation. Um, we, again, we were given this world as a gift, not to just do right. what we want with, but to take care of it. And so, yeah, I heartily agree with you. I'm really glad that you brought that up because, you know, I think this movie does show the uh, the danger of that. Um, and again, what do we see? It The reason for it is not because Kong's blood is going to cure cancer. It's right. for the obsession of a character who just wants to be famous. The most shallow of reasons ever, right? Yeah, they so, want to make him an attraction. Yeah. Yep, and 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 you know you can take that theme and you can run with it. So you yeah. know what will we do for for five minutes of fame? And and is it really worth it? So yeah, absolutely, I love that. That's great, Christy. Um, one of the things that I found most interesting about this film and. Uh, I remember, uh, obviously, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings had come out and Howard Shore had done the incredible music for that series. And then they announced that he was going to do the music for King Kong. And so I was really excited. And then I remember reading that he was basically let go because of creative differences with Jackson. I I don't think it was, you know, a a bad breakup or anything. I I just think they Mm -hmm. were it seemed as though that was just the case. And cause obviously he did the Hobbit movies later on with Jackson. So, um, but I, I find one of the things I am disappointed about. I really wish that we had gotten his take on the music because I, I personally found, uh, James Newton Howard's, uh, score. I, 
I like James Newton Howard. He's done some great scores. But I was personally uninspired by the soundtrack for this movie, and I was disappointed that that's the case. I feel like you want something that has some strength and power to it, and I don't feel like the soundtrack really ever completely offers that in a way that's memorable. Um, and that's disappointing mm-hmm. to me that, that we would not get that. Um, and I, I, again... I don't know if it's better, but it does make me wonder because there is a reason to wonder if his music, Howard Schwartz's music, would have been better. Yeah, I think that it definitely, for me as well, was um, generic, I guess is the best word yes, I have for it. Yes, thank you. That's a, yes. Yeah, like it. it it's fine. It's kind of what I it's expect. Fine. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that. it's like a, yeah it's like a saltine cracker compared to like the expensive table water crackers you know it's just Ooh. totally different now i'm making you hungry um but yeah it it's it's okay but it doesn't have like a designated theme for certain characters it feels like they really could have done something awesome with every time kong comes on screen and, you know, maybe even with Anne or um, with Jack, but it, it just feels lackluster and generic. So, yeah, I, yeah I'm on the yeah. same page. I agree. Yeah, I'm really uh, so kind of talking through the, the movie then. I'm really interested to see, um, you know, and I thought it was great for you, you. You mentioned that you always watch the extended cut now when you watch the movie. So where do you land with your rating for? King Kong by Peter Jackson. And I will preface it also with the first time I ever saw this movie was in the theater when it came out in 2005 with my mom. Nice. Very cool. And I remember actually the funny thing too is I've only ever seen the extended cut. I feel like that's what we saw in the theater even though it has a theatrical release because it was that long. Maybe they maybe they could have um, it could have been one of those things where they brought it back out into the theater and then released it, you know, so I don't know. But that's cool. Yeah. So I I do enjoy it. I think that there's a couple little things like we were mentioning with the, you know, the bugs, but that's not really a criticism on the movie itself. That's more of a a credit to the artists who made the effects. But I think that um, one other thing I meant to say, too, that kind of retracted for me, but it's a, you know, casting choice is with Brody. I love the buildup of them falling in love, but then when they actually kiss, did you not totally focus on his giant nose? <laughs> That's so mean. He can't do anything about that. <laughs> it, it really ruined the shot for me. <laughs> but otherwise, I thought he was great. So it, I think ultimately, uh, there's a lot that I really love about the movie, but I don't think it's a perfect movie. So I, I gave yeah. it a three and a half out of five. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. You know, it's funny because we're right there in the same spot. I'm actually a three and a half as well. And part yeah. of that is because there are a couple of things uh, more at the beginning of the movie um, when we first get to the island and especially when we are uh, with the crew and uh, the native population. And, and they're not actually natives, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're people that have been shipwrecked and been there for a long time, but they're not native to the island. So this population mm-hmm. that they run into, these these basically Kong cultists, um, 
there are a lot of places where it, and Jackson did this in the Lord of the Rings series where he does this thing where he kind of zooms in on something and he kind of slow mows the camera kind of back and forth to make it really creepy, right? Mm-hmm. He does that a little bit too much in this scene. Yeah, and I agree with that. Yeah, it, it was just, it was one of those things where I, I know it's a Jacksonism. Like he likes to do that in his, in, in his movies. Uh, I don't think it is as effective here as the uh, the way he uses it in the Lord of the Rings. Um, and part of that is because it was too much of it too many times in one scene. So it became less effective every time he was doing it. Uh, right. So uh, there's that. I, I do, and I will say this, especially rewatching it again this time, I think one of the things about the movie is that there are points where Jackson just kind of goes a little bit overboard with things. And it probably would have been better for him to rein some things back. And so, but I still really enjoy watching this movie. I had fun watching it again. And so absolutely three and a half stars, you know, so that's definitely way better than average with his, which is fantastic. Um, And uh, yeah, and it's a, it's a fun one. So I'll be really interested to see what other people think of it uh, and on social media. But uh, Christy, uh, before we get out of here, as always, it's time for recommendations. And I've got a good one. I'm really excited. So I actually have finally gotten back into reading some good books. I really love to read, especially at night because it gets me ready to go to sleep. But uh, I found this comedian. I don't know if you've heard of him as well. His name is Zach Anner. And he actually was born with cerebral palsy because he was two months premature. But he has become an author and comedian. Um, He's also met Oprah and Ellen, apparently. And he's just really one of those people that sees the positive in every situation. And his way of coping with his difficulties in life is by making fun of the situation. And it's not in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. He's just saying, like, this is the reality, but this is why it's so funny to me. So it should be funny to you. So, for example, I will tell you on the back of this book, which the book is called If at Birth You Don't Succeed. (laughs) So you're already getting a taste of what he's like. (laughs) Yeah. He says he botched his own birth. <laughs> it's like he's Tyrion Lannister. <laughs> yeah. But it, it even says, uh, you know, the synopsis on the back you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll fall in love with the Olive Garden all over again and learn why cerebral palsy is definitively the sexiest of all the palsies. <laughs> so I oh. highly recommend reading If at Birth You Don't Succeed by Zach Anner and nice. watching his stuff on YouTube because he's great. Man, I might have to pick that up. That just that alone was hysterical. So right. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so I'm going to recommend a book as well because um, I had just recently, uh, you know, uh, things were are slowly opening up here where I live, and I went to uh, Barnes and Noble and bought a book, and brand new book by Eric Larson. He's a really popular author, uh, New York Times bestselling author uh, in history, and uh, this latest book is called The Splendid and the Vile, and it is about Churchill's first year as prime minister uh, as things just continue to get worse, of course, with the blitz happening over London with the air raids. And it is a phenomenally fantastic book uh, about 
the struggle to maintain hope in a time that seems pretty hopeless, maintain some kind of normalcy. Uh, and I was so inspired by not just her Churchill, but this is really a story of, of his uh, family as they move through this, as well as London itself. And uh, just an incredible story of hope in a place where people should not have it. Uh, and I, I felt like it was really uh, the perfect book for, for the time period we're in, um, but just a, of resiliency. So highly recommend The Splendid and the Vile. And uh, so, yes, uh, this week either recommends we have your book list for you. But, uh, Christy, if anybody wants to catch up with you, of course, online, uh, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Best Ben Bell. And I do a couple of other shows as well as 602 Club. I'm on a show with my friend Teresa Delgado called Sabres and Spells on the Skynet Network. And we talk about Star Wars and Stranger Things and all kinds of cool stuff. So check that out. And then I do a show called Planet Leia on the Fanthatrax Network with five other women from around the world talking about different Star Wars topics. So soon we should actually be talking about um, what it's like to be a cosplay in Star Wars. So I know you'll want to check that nice. out too. Nice. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, and you can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero under the name MattRushing02. I'm here on the network uh, doing The Orb with Chris Jones as we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine when we get a chance to record. Uh, you can also find me on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One is called Owl Post with Dre Kaufman. Each and every week, we talk about Harry Potter one chapter at a time. And then I'm doing Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast where John Mills and I just talk about a new Star Wars topic each and every week, which is always so much fun. Uh, this last week, we were just kind of talking about Star Wars books overall from Legends to Canon and what's worked, what hasn't worked. So that was really fun diving in deep to that. And then... Uh, last but not least, and we're hoping to be back soon, Cinema Stories with my good friend Courtney as we talk about films through the lens of faith. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 